Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's been uh, four weeks since the last sermon in 1 Samuel, which covered chapter 12. The people of Israel had just made Saul their king and had renewed their allegiance to the Lord under King Saul. Then Samuel, in the capacity of God's prophet to his people, addressed the nation. And it's a remarkable address because it lays out God's case against the people for their unfaithfulness to him throughout their history, comparing then that unfaithful record to God's faithfulness to his people throughout all of their history. Samuel ended this short history lesson by laying out the consequences of disobedience because they still didn't quite fathom the seriousness of their sin and wanting a king like all the other nations had. Instead of crying out to the Lord for deliverance like they had repeatedly done before, they demanded a king they could trust, follow, and glory in. And that's quite a contrast. God gave the people then an incredibly frightening demonstration of his power and glory in the form of an instantaneous and tremendous thunderstorm in the dry season of the year, which was really strange for these folks. And it literally melted their hearts in fear and opened their eyes to their sin. Now, truly humble before their God, the people confessed their sin and asked Samuel to pray for them so they would not die, the text says. Samuel then assured the people of God's grace over them and exhorted them in chapter 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people, For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And then in verses 24 and 25, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now we come to chapter 13, which in an understated way here at the beginning, we could say is just full of problems. And this chapter highlights the theme of the hopelessness, the helplessness of the people in and of themselves. Before we get to the Philistine problem, which is the big problem here, we need to address something in verse 1 that's called the first one textual problem. Check your Bibles. Almost every translation of these verses, you can tell that there's some strange little marks in there because of this. I'm going to try to go through this really quick and make it so it's not complicated. In the newer 
New American Standard versions, the NIV, Holman, Holman Study Bible, etc. There's some more. We read something like this. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. This means that Saul was 30 years old when his son Jonathan was leading 1,000 soldiers in battle in verse 2 and following. So how likely is it that Saul fathered a son at about 10 years old? In other words, there's some problems here. But just hold on a second. In the older New American Standard, we read, Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. And this translation, 40 is inserted as Saul's age when he became king, but now the 32-year reign disagrees with Paul in Acts 13, verse 21, saying that Saul's reign was 40 years. And people get around these things by, you know, it was averaged this way or that way. The King James and the New King James says Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel. And the English Standard Version reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now the good thing about these last two translations, that neither one of them inserts any numbers in an attempt to correct what is thought to be an apparent textual omission. Like is done in the others. That make sense? The oldest and most reliable Hebrew text says basically pretty much this, literally. Saul was, quote, son of a year, unquote, when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years over Israel. That's what the text says. So the powers that be obviously read that, and they go, oh, there's something missing. There's got to be something missing. Let's correct it. So they inserted those other numbers. Son of a year... The translation of that is it's usually rendered as one-year-old or one-year or even at a certain age. It's got some different ways to translate it. Whereas uh, the number two is the only number that's actually in this verse. Reign two years over Israel. So I believe the following is the best solution to all this. What the text says is, when it had been a year, Saul began reigning over Israel, and he reigned for two years. What this means is, is that it had been a year since Saul's anointing, when the events of chapter 13 take place. And we'll see how this plays out perfectly in our text today. Also, while it is certain that Saul reigned more than two years... This is a strange case because the New Testament, as I've already mentioned in Acts 13, says 40 years. What's going on here is that the text seems to be stating that Saul's legitimacy as a king lasted only during the period of, in chapters 13 through 15. In fact, God tells him in our chapter, <coughs> you, you've just lost it. You're going to be replaced. So that seems 
maybe I'm just feeble-minded. You probably know that I am, but it makes more sense to just see it. He's talking about, so I'll reign a year, and then this stuff started happening in chapter 13 through 15, which was about two years. Now, if that's cleared up, we can actually get going. We have to address these things, otherwise... Some of you wouldn't hear the rest of the sermon at all if you're sitting there going, no, wait a minute. Okay, so the really big and obvious problem that King Saul had to face is the Philistines. And everybody's heard of the Philistines. Let's sort out some key factors in the instructions the Lord had given Saul through the prophet Samuel. And this is going to help us just really quickly run through and see the big picture of what God's done here. Remember that after the people had demanded a king, God had acquiesced and given them exactly what they wanted. He did this through a three-stage kind of here's the king you wanted process. You asked for a man like this, you got him, and here's how he did it. First stage was Samuel secretly anointed a very surprised Saul in chapter 10 at Ramah in order to convince Saul that he'd really been selected, which Saul was probably just going, what? This makes no sense. God then gave him a series of three signs in chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. The third of these signs to Saul happened in a place called Gibeath Elohim, but that is the same city as referred to elsewhere as Gibeah or as Geba. Um, all three of those designations are used in the text, but it's the same place. And that's where in chapter 10, verse 5, tells us there was a garrison of the Philistines. Just out of the blue. Poof. There is a garrison of the Philistines in this G-Town. The command that we read in verse 7 then becomes really important. 10-7, chapter 10, verse 7, Samuel tells Saul this. Now when these signs, all three of these signs that are in that part, meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For the Lord is with you. That sounds serious, and it is. The command was really a way of directing Saul, who had just been secretly anointed as king, to attack the Philistine garrison right there where he was. This command was a way of commanding Saul to attack the Philistine garrison. Then we read the word then in that text. Then, which means then, after doing that, Samuel instructs Saul in verse 8 to go to Gilgal. So we've got to nail, now, now we've got to say all the Hebrew names because there's too many G's. Then you're supposed to go to Gilgal and wait seven days until Samuel joins him. To show Saul what he should do. These are very specific instructions Samuel, God's prophet, gives. But instead of obeying the Lord through Samuel's instructions, what does Saul do? 
Saul goes home and basically conceals from his family what all had just happened. In other words, he didn't really want this responsibility at all. Which we can understand, can't we? That's the first stage of this anointing on making Saul king. The second stage was when Samuel publicly and clearly proclaimed Saul as king in chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, and that was at Mizpah. Again, Saul tried to hide, and it was public because, remember, he called the whole nation there, and they cast lots. Everybody knew, you know, it was this tribe, this family, this person, and the poof, it's Saul, and they couldn't find him, remember? He was hiding in the luggage. He hid, he hid, and then he tried to go home, or he went home. He did, however, right after that, he did rise up with the Spirit's enablement and deliver the city of Jabath-Gilead, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, from the marauding, who, you remember? Nahash the Ammonite. This is not a Philistine, this is an Ammonite. Israel had many enemies. And that's in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And that victory by Saul brought the people around to start embracing him as a king, which led to the third stage. In the third stage, the people renewed the kingdom in chapter 11, verses 12 through 15 at Gilgal. Sound familiar? Back to Gilgal. And they renewed, what that means is they renewed their allegiance to the rule of the Lord, which means their fidelity to God's sovereign kingdom under this king that they had demanded and now God had acquiesced and made very plain, you wanted him, you got him, here he is. You now have a king. But it took this long three-part stage of, of anointing and the casting lots and finally renewing the whole thing in order to make it clear to everyone, including Saul. Most of this was for Saul, the first part, that yes, he was to be the king. So when, here's the question, I hope you're keeping track. I know it's been a little hard here. The big question is, when did Saul finally get to Gilgal to wait for Samuel to give him more instructions about what to do? Not until about a year after the fact. And that's in our text today in chapter 13, verses 8 through 15 especially. And yet it turned into a disaster for Saul in the sense that the nature of of this king's heart was truly revealed in this episode. So, it's time to stand up if you're able and we will I will read 1 Samuel 13 verses 1 through 15 and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel 13 verses 1 through 15. And I'm going to try to read the the textual problem here so it makes sense like I came to, okay, so don't worry about it. 
When it had been a year, Saul began reigning over Israel, and he reigned for two years. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I felt compelled, and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as you're sitting down, just try to digest what we just read. It's been a long time of ice storms and cancellations and and special Christmas, and here's the New Year messages. So get all this together, because this is quite a story. The Philistines were...
right in your face enemy. They were right there in Israel's face because they were inhabiting even some of their territory enough that they had garrisons of soldiers. But there was this delicate truce between these two peoples, but that, as we just read, was getting ready to come to a quick and abrupt end. And as we do this this morning, I'm going to ask you to try to put yourself in these people's place, because this is scary, real scary. And unless you have lived in a land that had enemy forces running around, attacking and threatening your very life and livelihood, you don't understand this. I don't understand this like we need to. So get that first in your thoughts. This is scary. Saul's son, Jonathan, whom I hope everybody in here knows is one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament as far as faithfulness and loyalty and love for his God. And you're going, how can that happen? Look who his father was. Hey, God does some very interesting things, doesn't he? Well, here's our really our first introduction to Jonathan. And what does he do? He is the one who takes the initiative to strike and defeat the Philistines that his father had been told to do by Samuel a year earlier. Jonathan took the initiative. As we see in verses 3 and 4. But, what was the press release? Did you catch that? But all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison. So it doesn't take technology to make press releases come out a little skewed in favor of the man that's supposed to be in charge. Why didn't Saul take the initiative? Why didn't the king go out before Israel and fight their battles? That's what the people said they wanted back in chapter 8, verse 20. Does all this point to some deficiency in Saul that is really starting to reveal itself? These are great questions. But we also must remember as we go through this that contrasted with this man's heart, is what? God's faithfulness. And as we go through this, we've got to keep in mind something that's really the underlying promise, truth, that a true believer holds on to. What is that? That God's purposes are really not frustrated when his more authorized servants prove reluctant because he has others who prove willing in the day of his power. In this case, case, Jonathan steps up. Saul had formed a standing army, we see in verse 2, of 3,000 men, 2,000 under him, 1,000 under Jonathan. The rest of the people who could fight, you could call these guys uh, the citizens' militia, 
were sent home to wait until they were called. So whether intended or not, Jonathan's victory in Geba or Gibeah, same place, set in motion the resulting huge conflict. Saul then did what in verse 3? Roxanne's not here, so we can say it. He took Roxanne's trumpet and blew the thing all over. That's just saying that somebody under Saul and his authority blew the trumpet. And what does that mean? It means it was a call for national mobilization of forces, of every fighting man. After Jonathan's initial victory, the men of Israel were to join Saul at Gilgal. Why? Partly because, as verse 4 tells us, at the end of verse 4, Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines were ticked. What looked so promising at first would now turn into a living nightmare for these people. Very quickly, the Philistines' response to Jonathan's victory and the national, their national mobilization has been described as, and this is by a military man who exposited these passages, immediate and savage, overwhelming force. Well, yeah, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. At this point, with everybody leaving, Saul had like 600 people, men, farmers. And we find out later in the chapter, they didn't even have any weapons because the Philistines had kept the weapons. It was uh, called sword control. Register here. Oh, you're in Israel. Sorry, you can't have it. And 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. This is still in the hill country a little northwest of Jerusalem. All those little towns, if you look at a map that has them all, they're all kind of bunched right here, right here. And Gilgal is over, remember when they crossed over, when they came into the promised land, they kind of went there and uh, did some remembering about what God had done to deliver them. We don't see that happening very much right here, do we? So what could you say? The people at this point were helpless and hopeless. And if you don't see that in verse 6 and 7, you skip those two verses. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. Hard, why? Because the troops had been mustered, the Philistines, all throughout from the east, I mean from the west over by the Mediterranean Sea through the hill country to this garrison that had been defeated, they were coming fast. The people hid themselves, picture yourself, in caves, in holes. In tombs, in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan back on the east side to Gad and Gilead. 
Saul was still at Gilgal, because Gilgal was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and you could see people coming forever. And all the people followed him, all the people who were following him, all the people that were left following him trembled. Helpless, hopeless. Now we get to the real heart of our passage, which is what Saul did when under all this pressure. He did wait into the seventh day for Samuel, but a year after putting off God's instructions to take the Philistines, Samuel had not come yet, and the pressures and panic of the people were tremendous. But it was still the seventh day when Saul went on and performed this unlawful offering and sacrifice. The number of days to wait was not really the important part of Samuel's instructions back in chapter 10, verse 8. What was the main instruction? Samuel said, wait till I come. That's the instruction. As soon as Saul finished the sacrifice, Samuel showed up. Notice the three excuses that Saul gave when Samuel asked him, what have you done? We might say something like, what have you done? Or, what were you thinking? What's, where's the excuses? See if these sound familiar. Every one of us has used these and more. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, in other words, panic, lack of support, felt alone. But here's the one. He passes the buck. And you did not come. Can you see him? And you did not come when then the day's appointed. Except he had. The day wasn't over yet. And the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. In other words, that's scary, scary beyond belief. He's in fear and he feels trapped. But even in this scenario, in these harrowing circumstances, Saul had been told to wait. Waiting shows trust in the Lord to give protection in this series of commands while going ahead and offering the sacrifice shows more trust in his own judgment Samuel as God's prophet would give Saul God's guidance for how to conduct this war and that should have been an obvious need but Samuel was the bearer of God's word to Saul, not the other way around. And Saul's task was to wait for God's word. That's really what's going on here. Instead, he proceeded without it, without God's word, that Samuel, God's prophet, would bring. For Saul, the sacrificial ritual was absolutely essential. If I just do this sacrifice... Um, it'll, it'll get us ready, and God will get us out of this mess. Ever done that? 
If I just sit on the first or second row after I messed up this weekend, God will know I mean business and he'll get me out of it. But see, the prophetic direction of God's word to Saul was what? Dispensable. Secondary. It's backwards. Saul's action then was insubordination. A failure to submit to God's word through his prophet. And by this action, Saul confessed that certain emergencies rendered God's word unnecessary. Ooh, that hits close to home, doesn't it? When the chips were down, kingship could function on its own without God's word. All of us, of course, struggle with exactly the very same issues. But kings, especially, as noted here, easily forget that they are subjects. Anyone in authority has a special temptation to forget that they are also under authority, in other words. And it didn't take Saul very long at all to assume this posture of ignoring the king of kings and his word. Jesus uh, kind of spoke to this strongly. Matthew 23, 23 is one of the places. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Well, the consequence of disobedience for Saul are huge. Verses 13 and 14, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And we already know who that man is. There are some striking observations that we should not run from here. And if you're like me, that's the first thing you want to do. This is so convicting. We cannot run from these. So at least together, let's look at them. Saul, just like us, needed to be reminded that God is most interested in the motives of our heart. Saul's heart motives became so pragmatic and self-centered that he allowed dire circumstances, fear, and his case against Samuel's timing in when he finally came to override his basic responsibility, his fundamental responsibility to just wait for God's word to be given by the prophet. For the direction that would affect the whole nation in this war with the Philistines. A king sins, anybody in authority sins, affect the people under them. And we've all found that out the hard way. Why would God reject Saul 
for what may seem to us as such a small failure. Have you been thinking that? Well, this, he almost obeyed. I mean, he did wait seven days. I mean, it was close. He, he almost obeyed. In other words, hadn't he almost obeyed? And shouldn't that count for something? We're good at asking that question. But God, but, 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 but God, I smiled at her this morning. Remember 30 years ago? No, we won't go there. We see what the Lord sought in verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We should see here then that God desired a king whose heart was wholeheartedly committed to him in faith. And Saul's repeated disobedience and reluctance to take his responsibility and his reluctance and not hungering for and heeding God's word has already by chapter 13 revealed a serious problem of his heart. His heart was not wholeheartedly dedicated to the Lord, which is why he thought almost obeying was good enough for God. Don't, that's the point. If our hearts are not wholeheartedly committed to the one we profess to be our Savior and Lord, we will always think that almost obeying is good enough for God. And we should also see that Saul was exactly the kind of king that the people demanded and wanted, one like all the nations around him. Where in contrast, the next king, David, would be raised up by God as God chose him and he is, he is raised up by God to point to and be a type of the future Messiah King who would be sent by God to accomplish his redemptive purpose, Jesus the Messiah King. How do we know all that? Because there's so many places in the Old Testament that say this. One of them is in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, when David is revealed as God's choice to eventually replace Saul. We read, when everybody was wondering, why is this little squirt the one God chose? And we read there, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel's rebuke of Saul should also get us to notice several important biblical truths. The first one is just foolishness consists of violating the commands of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Yeah, we're supposed to use our minds and we're trying to understand. But trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. 
Our culture says independence in children is paramount. The most important thing on the face of the earth. But the word says what? That children are supposed to obey their parents. Our culture encourages sexual indulgence in every phase of a relationship. But God requires what? Purity and self-control. We don't need to go too much farther, etc., etc., etc. Trust in the Lord. Second thing we can get from this is that obedience to God is obedience to God's word. Um, It was because Saul treated God's word without reverence that he was rebuked by the Lord. Thirdly, if we want to do God's work, we must do it in accordance with God's word. Saul's responsibility was to serve Israel against her enemies. He was not on some agenda of his own. So what was the problem? He did not serve God in accordance with God's word. And we in the church need to stay alert on this because we do not have the authority to adapt the church's worship and desire for growth to worldly models derived from entertainment and business world. We look to Scripture. We can learn things and observe principles, but we do not have the authority to adapt what God calls us to do here today when we gather to that extreme. We should be faithfully applying the kinds of ministry taught and modeled in the Bible. Tonight at the ARF joint worship service, I'm going to be preaching again, and I noticed that I went through the sermon again here, this one, that the passage that I'm going to be preaching from tonight is actually... um, a pretty serious message from the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy about what he is supposed to really be concerned about in the church that he had been charged to lead, which was the Ephesian church. So you see why I'm mentioning that here? We're supposed to faithfully apply the kinds of ministry taught and modeled in the Bible. And in the message tonight, we see what the elders, the pastors, the leaders in the church are supposed to be continually concerned with, which means the people can either keep a checklist and go, well, that guy's messing this up, and that guy's messing that We all mess it up a little, maybe a lot, hopefully not. But the point is to get everybody on the same page. This is what God desires in order to figure these things out. The fourth thing that we need to see here is what we consider to be small matters of negligence are often considered by God not to be small at all, but major indicators of a heart that's not devoted to him. Why is that? Because it is in the little things of life that our heart's true attitude is most often revealed. And that's taught throughout Scripture. 
Jesus speaks to it directly as well. We're left right here in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 13 with this helpless, hopeless feeling of of Saul and the people in and of themselves. The helplessness of them in and of themselves. The hopelessness that they have in and of themselves because they can't do anything about this. They're about ready to become history themselves. Hiding in holes? Caskets? But we should know, as we've already seen, we've already seen this so many times in this book, and it's a theme throughout the Bible that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. And what is that? The total helplessness of God's people will prove to be the backdrop for God's deliverance. His deliverance may not look like what we want it to be, but he promises to deliver. And that's why God's remnant, his real true believers in the midst of people that call out to him, that's why his remnant refuses to lose heart. Because they know that these trials and hardships in life are used by God to actually accomplish his purposes and because they are so horrid sometimes and so dark, the glory of his light and the person of Christ shines much even brighter than it already is somehow. And it's seen by others as being really what it is. Seen first and foremost by those who love him and knows he's faithful. And we have a chance right now to uh, be reminded of that fact that we do not have to lose heart because our hope is in Jesus Christ and we get to be led in song as we uh, prepare to take communion by one of the best ever songs that we could sing to the Lord.